you have your Bibles this morning, you might want to open them up to 1 Kings chapter 13. First chap- or the 13th chapter of 1 Kings, that will, that's where we'll find the text that we want to spend the bulk of our time in this morning. I do appreciate uh, Brother Rader mentioning the website. I've been meaning to mention that myself for a couple of weeks and keep forgetting. Uh, but it's in your bulletin there. He announced it, and I'm just going to remind you again to please go and check that out. It's the same address as it's always been. It's listed there in the bulletin, but if you don't know, it's libertycfc.org. And check out the new design. You can go there, and there's a lot of features. You can listen to sermons that we have archived for this whole year online now. You can check out our calendar of events, upcoming activities. Uh, You can see some of the ministries that we're involved in. There's even a tool for online giving there so that if you forgot your check this week or if uh, you're the type that this is the only place you'd write a check and you'd like to dispense with that entirely, you can do that there as well. So all of those good things, check it out and let me know what you think or let the elders know what you think. We'd love to have your feedback on this because we hope this is going to be a good tool for us to increase our visibility with people in the community. There's a popular idea in the realm of religion that it doesn't really matter so much what a person believes. Just as long as they maintain that belief sincerely and that they act then faithfully in keeping with that belief. But you know that no one holds that view of any other aspect of life. For example, let's say that a person believes in the sound management, the good health of a company, even when that company's cooking the books. Let's call our hypothetical company Enron. And let's say that a person, yeah, some of you got that. Uh, Let's say that a person continues to invest in that company, continues to buy stocks, even as it starts to plummet, they hold on to their shares. Maybe they even buy more because now they think it's a good buy and it's going to bounce back at some point. All the while, executives, of course, are liquidating their shares. Is a person's sincere belief in the soundness of that company going to guarantee their investment? Of course not. In fact, we recognize that the more strongly they believe in it, the worse off they are. We're not too many years removed from a major economic crisis that demonstrates this very same thing with the failure or the near failure of a number of large financial institutions and other companies. And this same principle holds true in every aspect of life. It's true in government. It holds true in science where false belief actually impedes knowledge. It's true in war. If you're a history buff like me, especially of Civil War history, the name George B. McClellan, that will be familiar to some of you. McClellan was removed as commander of the Army of the Potomac not once, but twice. And it wasn't because he lacked organizational skill. It wasn't because his troops had low morale. His men loved him but it's because he consistently had the false belief that he was outnumbered two or three to one, when in fact usually the opposite was the case. But that false belief paralyzed him with fear. 
he wouldn't act. Or think about a case we all know, the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Some of the world's elites were on board that ship, convinced that due to modern technology, that ship was unsinkable. And because of that belief, they persisted straight ahead, even with warnings of ice fields ahead, with the result that 1,200 people found themselves a grave at the bottom of the sea. So with all of that said, it would be strange, to say the least, if the only area that this didn't hold true was in religion. That is, if the belief of any old thing was as good as another. If belief in error was just as good as belief in the truth. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't think that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, we find him there talking about the man of lawlessness. And he says that some are going to perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus to be saved. And he says there in verse number 11, therefore, that is because they've refused to love the truth, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now, he doesn't mean that God's going to send them that delusion by any sort of direct communication, but just that he's going to allow that error to work upon them so that they become lulled into this false sense of security, this false confidence. The result of this, verse 12, is in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see there? The result of believing a lie isn't salvation. It's condemnation. Jesus taught this very same principle. In speaking of the Pharisees, he says, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall into the ditch. You see, the idea that believing error is just as good as believing truth is that a blind man is effectively saved from falling into the ditch because he's blind. But we know that's not the case. On the contrary, the blind man falls into the ditch precisely because he's blind. And the same thing is true of the blind man that's being guided by. Well, there's an incident recorded for us in the Old Testament which almost seems to have been handed down to us for the very purpose of teaching this very principle. It's the story of the young man of God who comes to prophesy before Jeroboam, king of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 13. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about the background of this story. After Solomon, king of Israel, died, the kingdom of Israel was divided. His son and successor was Rehoboam. And the people of Israel came to Rehoboam and they asked that he lighten the load their father, his father placed upon them. Rehoboam refused. And so the northern ten tribes effectively seceded from his rule and they formed their own kingdom. And they appointed a man named Jeroboam to rule over them. After Jeroboam had established his rule in Israel, he was consolidating his power. And he decided that the people going down to Jerusalem to worship as the law required 
was a problem because Jerusalem was in Rehoboam's territory. And I know the map here, you perhaps can't see it that well. I apologize. That's the largest tags I could get there. But you can see that Jerusalem, where the temple is, is in the southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam made two calves of gold, and he placed them at the two extremities of his land, one in the north at Dan, one in the south at Bethel. And he went to the people, and he said, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He also appointed a new feast day. And he took upon himself the role of a priest. And on the first day of that feast, he set to offer incense there on the altar. In the meantime, God spoke to a young man who lived in Judah, a prophet. And he ordered that young man to go up to Bethel and to cry out against the altar. And God told him exactly what to say. He arrived just in time to witness the first burning of incense, and he made his way through the crowd until he got close to the king. And he cried out there, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And almost immediately, the altar was torn asunder, and the ashes scattered. Well, when Jeroboam heard that, he was furious. And he reached out his hand and he said, seize him to his guards. And as soon as he had done that, his hand became useless. He couldn't draw it back in. Now, Jeroboam was no dummy. He wasn't unacquainted with God. He recognized what was going on here, and so he immediately changed his tune. And the, he says to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. The prophet did that. And the king's hand was restored to normal just as suddenly as it had withered. So Jeroboam has now seen three signs in rapid succession. The splitting of the altar the withering of his hand, and then the subsequent healing of his hand. That would be enough to make just about anyone have a change of heart. And Jeroboam's no exception. Suddenly that young man that he'd been so angry with just a moment before, he's wonderful in the king's eyes. And all of that wrath is changed to admiration. And he says to him, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. What a surprise that must have been to that poor prophet. Invited to a royal dinner and to a reward where he had expected to receive only hatred and threats. Don't you think that was a great temptation? But instead, he responded, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. 
For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. If you'd been in his place, or if I'd been in his place, would we have been able to do the same? Have you ever been invited to dine with a king? I mean, I don't know, we have some movers and shakers here in this congregation. Maybe we have some that have been invited to dine with kings, I don't know. I'll speak for myself. I haven't been invited to dine with a king. And so this must have been tempting to go and to take him up on his offer. And yet he resisted. Why? Because God had commanded him not to do that. And so he immediately turned on his heel and he went back towards home by another direction. Now just here, I want us to notice that this young man of God is as admirable a character as anyone we encounter anywhere in Scripture. He's so courageous in obedience that he defied the power of the king. He was so free from ambition that he resisted the flattery of the king. He was so unselfish that he didn't allow himself to be tempted by the reward of the king. And you know, from a purely human point of view, there's no logical reason to resist this temptation. You've got to eat and drink sometime. Why not go here? King's house is just as good as any other place. Or he might have fallen back on what we so often do in our human reasoning and use the idea of expediency. Well, you know, if I went over there to Jeroboam's house, I might convert him. I might get him to repent. I might get him to turn back to God. But he didn't do that. Implicit, unquestioning obedience was his rule of life. But now we come to the second act in this little drama. In that same city of Bethel, almost under the shadow of Jeroboam's calf lived another prophet, an old prophet. He knew good and well that Jeroboam's worship was false, but he lacked the courage of his convictions, and so he kept silent. Now, because he knew it was wrong, he didn't go to see the burning of the incense on that unauthorized feast day. But the old man had sons, and one of them had been in attendance, and he saw everything that transpired. And he ran home afterwards, and he told his dad everything about it. Well, that old man was instantly filled with admiration for his fellow prophet. Here's a man who, well, he was everything he was not. He possessed the courage that he lacked. And so he told his sons to saddle his donkey. He would go out to find him. And pretty soon he did, dismounted, resting underneath the shade of an oak tree. And he hurried up to him and he said, Come, come home with me and eat bread. And that young man answered him with the very same words that he'd answered Jeroboam. I may not return with you. 
or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. But that old man was eager to have him in his home. So eager that he made up a lie. I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. The lie prevailed. This man, who was immune to danger, to flattery, to greed, was overcome by the plausibility of a lie. And notice here, this isn't a bad man. This is a brave man, a faithful man, a good man. The old prophet carried him back to his house, and they sat down to eat, and the table must have been spread with all of the best that he had to offer. The two were sitting there visiting, no doubt enjoying themselves when suddenly the Spirit of God fell upon that old prophet. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father." The joyful feast ended in gloom. That young man of God must have been weighed down with guilt for what he'd done. And he set out on his way home, and I imagine he was probably wondering what those mysterious words meant, what God had in store for him. But he didn't have to wait long. He was only a few miles down the road when he encountered a lion. He sees the glare in the beast's eyes. He feels its claws as it paws him to the earth. He feels its hot breath. He feels the strength of its jaw as it closes upon him, crushing his ribs. And then he feels no more. What do you suppose was going through that man's mind? as that lion attacked him. Was he thinking about the lion? Or was he thinking about his sin? Some men came along and they saw a strange sight depicted here. A lion sitting beside a man that he'd plainly killed, and yet the man was uneaten. And his donkey was sitting there completely unharmed. They went into the city and reported it, and that old prophet knew exactly what that meant. It's the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. He told his sons to saddle his donkey. He went out and found the young man's body. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. 
And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after that was done, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. That's pretty poor atonement for all the evil that his lie had caused. But it's the best that he could do. When we consider this story, I think we see the truth of what Paul says, that everything written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. But you're probably sitting there thinking right now, why didn't God kill the old man who told the lie rather than the young man who believed it? I mean, wasn't his the greater guilt? Why didn't God kill him instead? I can't answer that for certain. But I will say this. There are numerous texts, specific instructions, numerous examples in Scripture that warn us about the danger of lying. Tell us specifically to be truthful in what we say. Warn us about the consequences of lying. So nobody then and nobody now in particular needs a lesson on that. We all know that what that old prophet did was wrong. But this story impresses us with the danger of believing a lie. See, this story illustrates that very same principle that we saw Paul teach, that we saw Jesus teach of being led by blind guides. This prompts the question, will every person who believes a lie in regard to God's will perish? That is, are, are all lies regarding God's will detrimental in the same way that this one was? Well, I sure hope not. Because if so, we're on some pretty dangerous ground. Even in a moderately sized audience like this, if we were to go through and to examine some text or some controversial issues as it comes to Scripture, I can guarantee that we wouldn't get universal agreement on anything, let alone everything. And so that indicates to us right there that some of our beliefs, maybe lots of them, must be lies, or must be false at least, concerning God's will. If our salvation depends on our perfect knowledge, then all of us are doomed, because we don't have perfect knowledge and we never will. Thankfully, that's not the case. Think about it this way. If a blind man leads another blind man along a perfectly smooth road where there is no ditch, well, then no one is going to fall into a ditch. So, in other words, if this young prophet had been told to do almost anything else, anything that didn't violate God's command, he would have been okay. If that old man had come up and said to him something like, run for your life, an angel came and told me that you're in great danger, don't stop till you get home. Well, that young man would have 
arrived home pretty scared and out of breath, but he wouldn't have been killed by a lion because he wouldn't have transgressed God's will. So the distinction we need to make is this. Any kind of lie that would cause me to violate God's will, that is, to fall short of it or to go beyond it, any kind of lie that would cause me to sin, in other words, that's the kind of lie that brings condemnation. This young man was condemned specifically because this lie caused him to directly contradict God's will. See, there are things in the realm of religion that I can believe that may or may not be true, but that won't cause me to be condemned because they won't lead me into sin. There are lots of things we could cite here, but just as an easy example, one thing that's been unnecessarily controversial among some Christians. There are some people who think that the Holy Spirit literally dwells personally within the Christian. There are some others who think that the Spirit only indwells the Christian figuratively, that is, through the Word, representatively. One or the other of those isn't true. In other words, one or the other of those is a lie. But would either of those theories cause a person to sin? No. Neither one of those ideas would interfere with a person's obedience to God. There's only one thing that will separate me from God, and that's sin. The question we need to ask then, if there are some lies that will cause us to be condemned, some lies that might take us beyond God's will, how can we be sure that we're not being led by blind guides? If I'm a blind man myself, and we all are to some degree, then we need to be sure that we don't have another blind man guiding us. We don't need to put our trust in them. I only need to let those who can see guide me. But how do we do that? Where do we find that sort of reliable guide in the realm of religion? There's only one set of people that we can implicitly trust. It's not me. Don't put your trust in me. I'm just as blind as all the rest of you. So don't just count on me to tell you what to do. Don't put your trust in the elders. They're good and godly men, and they're seeking to know God's will, but they're just as blind as you are too. There's a lot of good Bible teachers in this audience. Don't put your trust in them. Don't put your trust in your favorite uh, author, your favorite preacher. doesn't matter who it is. There's only one set of people that we can trust fully and completely to guide us. It's the Lord Jesus and his apostles. We have their written guide left for us to chart and to plan our course. And as we study it, there may be times, as I said, where we disagree. We may differ on questions of exegesis, questions of interpretation, questions of history. We may not see eye to eye on the understanding of a particular passage. But, you know, rarely, if ever, will we be in doubt about what is or what is not sin. And having found that, we're in a better position to prevent anyone from leading us into sin. 
So that means each and every one of us, individually, personally, we need to be students of God's Word. We need to study out and discern what His will is for us. And once we find that, we need to take and to put it into practice in our lives. Don't be like that young prophet. Don't rely on some voice of authority to just spoon-feed you what God's will is. Study it and know it for yourself. Among all the lies that are told in the realm of religion, there's one that's the most prominent, the most popular, one that has caused more people to be lost than any other. And that is that in this life, there are duties we have to perform, obligations that we have to meet, problems that we need to solve. But for all of these things, there's still enough time. We'll do that tomorrow, like Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. I'll worry about that tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. That's the lie believed by Felix. Do you remember? the Roman governor. Paul's appearing before him in Acts chapter 24, and it says, as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix trembled. He believed it. But he said to Paul, go away. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call for you. Felix believed the lie that there was more time. And to our knowledge, that convenient season never came. That lie has brought condemnation to more people than anyone else. And thousands of people have refused to submit to God's authority, to humble themselves before the Lord because they believed that they had more time to do it. Don't fall into that trap. Remember that we have an adversary who is the father of lies. He wants you to believe that. He walks about like a lion seeking to devour you. So if you've been thinking about making the decision to become obedient to Christ, I urge you this morning, don't wait any longer. Don't believe the lie that there's more time. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. Put your trust in Christ. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with the Lord in baptism and have your sins washed away. Be added to God's people. Have that home in heaven prepared for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, but you've allowed yourself to believe that lie that there's more time to get your house in order. There's changes you need to make and you know that, but you think, I'll worry about that later. Just a little more time. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. If there's changes you need to make this morning, whatever your need may be, don't delay. Come now while we stand and while we sing.